0: Alright, good evening everybody. I must say this feels extremely strange to um, sit here in my dining room and speaking to my phone. Uh, I've never done something like this before so please forgive me if I make any mistakes or fumbles. Uh, I actually had a picture that I wanted to show you uh, that just illustrates how bad my English is first, <laughs> all right, maybe I'll show you that one to you next time. But um, besides that, I've never done a live stream like this. I've tried my best to set everything up. If uh, perhaps one day I can show you what I've done here, I might take a picture or move the camera around, but I've got a screen there, a screen here, a screen here, um, and everything's moving and two of them are showing my face. So, It is strange. Um, Can you please let me know in the comments if the sound is okay? Uh, Brother Mike, I know you're watching. Um, I tried the lapel mic. It doesn't work with my computer or my phone. So yeah, unfortunately I can't do that. So if you guys would just be so kind as to let me know in the comments, if you can hear me well, or if I should uh, tune something Uh, with that, maybe make it a little bit louder. Uh, I see we have a little bit of a lag, okay, thanks, thanks, that's good to hear. Um, All right, so tonight we're going to do the book of, well, we're going to start the book of Philippians. Uh, We'll start in chapter one, so you can um, start to open up your Bibles there, Um, but I think before we just rush into this lesson, let's just bow our heads and we can pray. Father we thank you for being with us today Thank you Lord that once again we can Come to you in the middle of the week And um, Learn some more about You and about your word Oh Lord thank you so much That uh, you are so gracious To us that we can do stuff Like this um, uh, uh, Even in the Circumstances that we're in right now And Lord I My one prayer tonight is that Your name be glorified Please, Lord, will you teach us? Will you speak to us in our hearts? Show us, Lord. Your, your word is always so powerful and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And, Lord, we, we ask that you will please use that sword tonight and show us, Lord, what we need to change in our lives, what we need to learn from this, what we can take away and teach others, Lord. We just want to serve you. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do. And thank you for being with us tonight even though we're together virtually. (laughs) Amen. Amen. All right. So you've got the book of Philippians there. Now, just very shortly, Philippians is one of those epistles that that Paul wrote while he was still imprisoned in Rome. We've already done Ephesians and Colossians, which are other prison prison epistles. But the major theme here is to rejoice. And that joy... That Paul is going to speak about and he, he uses the word joy and rejoice over and over again in this book. It is always deeply rooted in a desire to be like Christ and to bring him glory. Now we'll see some more of that as we go through it. But first off, now let me see if I can do this. I want to show you the outliner. I've seen how Brother Mike does it. There we go. And it's red. And it's on my face. (laughs) Anyway, so there you have the outline for this chapter. Uh, From verse 1 to 2, we have the greeting. And then verses 3 to 11, we're going to look at thanksgiving and prayer for the Philippians. Paul uh, is very grateful for the Philippians and for who they are and what he's heard about them. And then from verse 12 to 18, we'll um, see that he's rejoicing that Christ is being preached. Um, verses 19 to 26, all of life is for Christ. And verse uh, from verse 27 onwards until verse 30, rejoicing in suffering for Christ. Rejoicing in suffering for Christ. Now, I'll just leave that on uh, for a moment or two. But in verse 1 and 2, you find a typical example of how a first century letter began. We actually see examples, examples of this in all of Paul's letters. Now, these letters um, in this time actually started with the sender of the, uh, and the recipient of the letter, the names of those people, along then with the basic greeting. And I, I found it interesting, you know, um, just thinking about this while I was preparing that we do it the other way around. We we have a greeting at the top. We say hi or dear John or whatever, but we put our names at the very end. It's just an interesting difference. Um, It's not really important. (laughs) Let's look at verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Now, But like I said, that's a basic greeting from Paul. And he he says that he is addressing this letter to all the believers at Philippi, including the leaders of the church. Now, he says Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Now, the word being used here for servant literally means a slave. So Paul is saying that he and Timothy were willing slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Paul uh, doing the same thing uh, in, or using the same type of language in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, where he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. James does the same. If you look in James chapter 1 and verse 1, where he calls, calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of those words in Greek are exactly the same word, which is doulos, I'm going to spell it for you. I don't have it ready to put it on screen. It's D-O-U-L-O-S. And that literally means a slave. Peter also uses this term uh, in his greeting in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. And Jude does the same in Jude verse 1. Now, I find this interesting. When the writers of the New Testament identify themselves in their greetings of their letters, they first explain who they are and what they are in relation to Jesus Christ. They either say that they are servants, apostles, or, or both, but that is the first thing that they want people to know uh, before they continue with what they actually wanted to write about. And I can't help but ask, um, how would you identify yourself? Are you a servant of The Lord Jesus Christ. That is, are you a willing slave of Jesus Christ? Think about this. If the Lord were to require it of you, are you willing to give everything up in order to serve Him alone? I just had to ask that. Uh, That's the thought that hit me while I was going through this. Uh, And we will see later on in this epistle that Paul actually did give everything up. And he wasn't like that rich young man. You will remember that rich young man that came and and saw Jesus. And Jesus said, sell everything and uh, give the money to the poor and come and follow me. But that man walked away sad. He he wasn't willing to give everything up uh, for Christ. Verse 2. He says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me just take this outline away. Now, verse 2 is just a standard greeting that Paul uses in, um, in his other epistles as well. And you, you will be able to see it there. Verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, this is great. Now, we'll see why he thanks God in verse 5 when we get there. But when every thought about the Philippian church, he does so with thanksgiving. It gave him joy to think about them and to pray for them. And as we see in verse 4, read verse 4 with me. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. Now, in Acts chapter 16, we actually read about some of the memories that Paul would have had uh, about the Philippians um, and about what happened in Philippi when he was there. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, we read how Lydia and her husband were saved and baptized. And then we read how uh, Paul drove out an unclean spirit from a woman. It was a soothsaying um, spirit, and she brought her masters a lot of money because she could do these things. And because Paul drove out that unclean spirit, he and Silas were arrested and they were imprisoned because these guys' money was all gone. (laughs) They were beaten and they were thrown into prison for that with their feet in the stocks. And the guard was even especially uh, instructed to keep an eye on them. Now, we read there out that same guard got saved. Um, and you can get the whole story in Acts chapter 16 and how he treated them. And he treated them well. And they finally got um, out of jail. And how many believers at Philippi comforted, comforted Paul and Silas at Lydia's house before they left. But folks... Paul had a very, very hard time, physically speaking, at Philippi. But when he thought about the believers there, he just thanked God for them. And it filled his heart with joy. You know, it made me think of Romans 8, 28. He didn't just write that down because, well, it sounds good. It sounds spiritual. He actually believed it. He truly, truly believed that all things work together for them or, or to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. And we will su- see some more of this in this later Verse 4. Always in every, every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy. Now I, I already touched on this. It filled Paul's heart with joy to intercede on behalf of these Philippian believers. Now. That's the heart of a pastor, isn't it? And not only a pastor, but I believe that we should all be filled with joy to be able to intercede on behalf of our fellow believers. You know, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And this also works in the area of prayer. It really is a a source of joy to be able to intercede on the behalf of others. Now, I I read this great uh, quote from uh, John MacArthur. Some of you might, might know the name. But when he commented on this verse, he said the following. Faithful and sincere intercession is much more than an obligation. It is a joy. Faithful intercessors are more preoccupied with the needs and welfare of others than their own. And ask God to pour out his divine blessing on them. If you truly love the brethren you will care about what is going on in their lives and what they need and and you will care more about that than your own needs and it will reflect in your prayers which you can then send to God with joy because you know that he cares for his children and he is the one that can do something about whatever you're praying about now We're going to get to verse 5 now, and and, and verse 5 actually links in to verse 3. It's actually part of the same sentence. Uh, Verse 4 is more of a thought that Paul put in between those two verses. Uh, At least that's how I see it. So let's read verse 3 and then we'll read verse 5. I thank God, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul is rejoicing when he remembers this church because they joined him to evangelize the rest of Philippi since the beginning of the church there. And not only that, but they also supported Paul financially after he left that area. And we we see that in Philippians chapter 4. Let's let's just turn there quickly. Philippians 4 and verse 15. Philippians 4 verse 15. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. <clears throat> so the Philippians were the only believers in that in the beginning of the gospel, as he says, when they, when they started ministering there, and um, that actually ministered to all of his needs. And when they did that, they were making an eternal investment into the ministry of the gospel. They wanted others to be saved like they were. And so they supported Paul so that he could reach more people because he he went to places where they couldn't reach. And folks, that is why we are supporting missionaries, isn't it? Uh, They are able to go to places and dedicate their lives to that and we are here. I mean, I work a full-day job. I don't have time to go out to different islands or different country or different town even every day and witness uh, to different people. But these, these guys can, and they need our support. And, and that is what the Philippians did for Paul. Let's go back to chapter 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this good work that he is referring to is a reference to their salvation. So you see, salvation is only the start of the work that God does in a person when they come to faith. God does not have a lot of halfway projects lying around the house like, like, well, many of us do, okay? I have a lot of halfway projects (laughs) lying around the house. But when God starts to work in someone, He will continue working and working and working until He finishes it in that day of Jesus Christ. And this is an excellent verse to go to when when we talk about eternal security of a believer. Uh, Because God will keep on working. He's not going to just stop that work in the middle of it. It wouldn't make sense. Now, you know that we have an entire lesson on that in our basic discipleship course. And if you haven't gone through that, I strongly recommend it. Um, um, You're welcome to contact me if, if you would like to go through that. But the point in this verse is clear. God will continue working in a person from the day that he gets saved until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, what a wonderful promise. You know, that should fill you with excitement. God is not done with you. You are still a work in progress. And He won't just leave you the way you are. He will continue working. And it may not always be comfortable, but it it is part of the good work that He started in you and that He's constantly performing in you. Now, he says that God will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the rapture. That's the day that we not only leave this world behind, but according to 1 Corinthians 15, we will also receive new bodies that are similar to Jesus' glorified body. And we will finally be free from all sin and, and even the temptation of sin. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, John writes that we will be like him in that day, like Jesus. And then the highlight of it all, he says, we will see him as he is. Folks, we're going to see Jesus. The one that we put our faith in to save save us. And the one that actually did save us. The one we've never seen. We've heard a lot about him. We have a relationship with him. But one day we will see him just like he is. That's a lot to look forward to. Oh, for sure. Look at verse 7. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Paul loved these Philippian believers a lot. And that's why he says things like, I have you in my heart and how greatly I long for you all. Um, what is it saying? How greatly I long for you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And we actually see in all of his epistles that he greatly loved all of the believers, even those that disappointed him. These Philippians were partakers of the same grace as Paul, not only by being saved by the same gospel that saved Paul, but also by standing by him during his imprisonment and, and his trial in Rome, where he had to defend and confirm the truth of the gospel. They prayed for him, and they sent him some relief. They they tried to meet his needs in whatever way they could. They were his, his spiritual partners in the ministry. And Paul calls God as his witness that he longs for them, he says, in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now, if if that's not a familiar word to you, the bowels are the internal organs of a person. So he's talking about that genuine, intense, heartfelt, deep longing that you can feel towards someone. And the best way to explain it is to refer to the bowels because, I mean, you feel it down there. Um, you know, the, the, whenever somebody is sad, or maybe, uh, maybe you felt this before, you've been sad, or you lost somebody that you loved, uh, somebody that passed away, or, or, or something like that, you know, that, that intense feeling, it really feels like it's coming from there, isn't it, from, from down there in the bowels, and that's what he's talking about, he's, he's longing after them, with that deep, deep, Deep love that comes from Jesus Christ. I'm just going to pause for a moment and just make sure. Okay, we still don't have any problems. I'm just just checking the comments there. So let's look at verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. So now we get to the content of Paul's prayer for the Philippian believers. And he starts off by saying... That he prays that their love may abound more, get more and more. So love, folks, and, and, and you should know this, it, it is a central theme of Christianity. Whether that is God's love towards men, or the believer's love towards God, or believer's love or mankind's love towards it, towards each other. I think John chapter 3 and verse 16 is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. I don't know. Maybe Genesis 1-1. I'm not sure. But John John three sixteen is definitely up there. And it tells us how God displayed His amazing love toward mankind in that He loves mankind so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. But I have everlasting life. And it is this love that gave rise to the New Testament and the church. I mean, that's the reason we're doing this right now. Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that that is how we can know that God loves us. Because Christ died for us. That's the proof of it. And God not only loves us, but John even tells us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 that God is is love. <laughs> it is part of God's very nature. And it is critical in understanding the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is because of love, God's love towards men that He didn't just leave us to ourselves and, and just let us be damned to hell. You know, people sometimes fall into a depression or, or, or they go through some kind of, call it a spiritual valley. And they start to think that, that God doesn't care anymore or that he doesn't love them anymore. I know some of you have experienced that in the past. I know I have. Some of you may exp- be experiencing it right now. But that is when we should remember what God already said. And we should rather stand on that than building our, you know, on a house of sand of how we feel. His love is not dependent on how we feel. Uh, in fact, He is the initiator <laughs> of this love. As John tells us in 1st John chapter 4 and 9, verse 19, that we love Him because He first loved us. <laughs> now, as I said, one of the greatest expressions of God's love uh, towards mankind is that He sent His Son to die for us. <clears throat> Now, that happened about, what, 2,000 years ago, maybe a little bit more right now. So, do you see, (laughs) he first loved us, even though he knew everything that we would do, everything that we would say, everything that we would feel, he still loves us. And that may be something to ponder if you are going through a rough time spiritually. But now, there's a lot to say, of course, about the love of God towards man. And we simply don't have time for it in this occasion. But that would definitely be a wonderful study. um, Wonderful study to do, to get all the verses and all the info that we can get from the Bible about that. Because there's just so much. Now, you will remember back in Matthew chapter 22, that there was a lawyer that came to Jesus one day. And he asked him what the greatest commandment in the law was, right? And Jesus answered him there uh, in verse 37. Now, by the way, that's your attendance code for tonight. That's Matthew 22 and verse 37. But he said there, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And this speaks of the love that mankind should have towards God and also towards our fellow man. Now, I mentioned what uh, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19 says. Uh, John said there, we love him because he first loved us. So you see, it is, it is only natural to return the love that God has expressed towards us. Folks, we've been rescued from an eternal punishment. One that nobody living here today is going through. I don't care where they live. I don't care what they are going through. I don't care where it is in the world. Nobody living today has experienced something like that. And God had to give his only son to be a ransom for us so that we could be saved from that. Now, who in their right mind would not immediately love God in return? It just wouldn't make sense, right? And the way that we can love him is by keeping his commandments, you know, by, by doing what he told us to do. Now, lastly, there there is the love that we should have towards mankind and especially towards other believers. And this should really also be a natural outflowing of being saved. In fact, John also tells us that, that it can even be used as evidence that somebody is actually saved. So in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. You know what? Let, let's turn there for a moment. I'll just grab a bookmark here. 1 John chapter 4. Because we can't go through an entire lesson. Not, not have your page a little bit, right? 1 John chapter 4. And verse 20. You're welcome to pause the video if you're not there yet. (laughs) All right, verse 20 says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So that's the commandment we got. Now, I know that. a lot of people tend to get this backwards when we talk about the evidence for somebody's salvation. You see, if something can be evidence of your salvation, it does not mean that you are saved by exhibiting that evidence. I hope that makes sense. I can't read your, your thoughts through the camera. <laughs> right? You see, if love towards the brethren is an evidence of salvation... You shouldn't make the mistake to think that you will be saved by loving the brethren. Those are two different things. Salvation is like the root of a tree, while love for the brethren is the fruit of the tree. And in fact, it is even called the fruit in Galatians 5 and verse 22. So it is something that will be evidenced in your life if you walk in the Spirit. Now, let's go back to Philippians 1. And verse nine, um, and <clears throat> sorry. So the Philippians were already showing their love towards Paul and and each other, even, and Paul is accepting that as a given, and this is why he could say that he wanted their love to abound more and more. Now we have similar ex- similar exhortations such as this in one Peter chapter one and verse twenty two, where Peter tells the believers to love one another with a pure heart fervently. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. And there are others like this. We have a lot of this in the Bible. But Paul adds here, and he says in verse 9, <clears throat> that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now this is an important thing to understand here. Real biblical love is not based on sentiment or or physical attraction, but it is grounded in the truth of Scripture, and it fulfills the standards that the Bible puts on it. So that is the knowledge that that, uh, Paul is referring to here. But it is not just the mere knowing of the facts of Scripture, but it, it also involves obedience to it. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so any kind of love, that is that is true love, that is not grounded in the truth and standards of the word of God, is not genuine biblical love, of course. But Paul goes on to say that he wants their love to abound in all judgment. He says, yeah, in all judgment. Now, this must be very strange um, to hear for those people that equate Judgment with hatred. (laughs) You know, those are not the same things. But we've looked at all the verses before uh, that tell us that we should be judging righteously. So we won't go into that right now. But what is he saying here? Well, to judge is actually the practical implementation of knowledge. Okay, you can quote me on that. (laughs) You see, it is not enough to just know the truth, but you should be able to apply it love is able to tell the difference between right and wrong and then doing something about it i think this is beautifully illustrated in the parable that jesus told about the good samaritan Uh, now you can read about that in luke chapter 10 if you want a reference but in there jesus said that the both the priest and the levite people that knew the scripture all right they were taught in the scripture they They um, had their uh, duties in the temple and so on. They just passed by the man that was beaten up and left for dead next to the road. They actually passed by on the other side of the road. You know, oh, I don't want to be close to that guy. But they had the knowledge of Scripture. So they should have loved the man because of that knowledge and because they know what God wants. But they rather passed by on the other side. But instead, this Samaritan man took the time to help this man. The Samaritan knew that the right thing to do was to help him rather than ignore him. And that, folks, is real biblical love, which is knowledge being put into practice. So Paul continues his prayer in verse 10. He says... That ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So, believers have always been bombarded by different things in the world, and Paul's prayer is that the Philippians will be able to make a distinction between those things that are really important and those things that are not, so that they can establish the right priorities in their lives. And the reason for that is that they will be properly prepared. For that day that Jesus comes back and we as believers will be judged by him. You know, that's the judgment seat of Christ. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul says there that we have Christ as the foundation. When you get saved, you get a new foundation. And that is Jesus Christ. That foundation is immovable. And from there on out, you start building on that foundation. On the one hand, you can build with wood, hay or stubble. And on the other hand, you can build with gold, silver, and precious stones. And those are the the decisions that a believer needs to make. Are you going to spend your time doing worthless things? You know, things that are not necessarily sinful. I think we can all agree that sinful things should not be done by a believer. But the things that you are doing, are they adding any value to eternity? Because... If it's not, that's the word hay, and stubble. Or will you spend your time here on earth by laying up treasure in heaven and thereby adding value to eternity? You know, we we need to approve those things that are excellent. We, We need to make a distinction and we need to choose the right things, the excellent things. And now part of his prayer here is that the believers would be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Now, to be sincere means to be genuine. It means to be truthful. So you need to be without any hypocrisy. And it's very easy to put up an act before men so that they think that you are a spiritual and sincere person. But folks, God knows the heart. He knows every single person's heart. And and so Paul wants these believers to be presented as blameless when they stand before Jesus Christ. He does not want Jesus to stand there and point their finger and tell them, why have you done this? Why, why was your um, motives not wrong? And so on and so forth. Verse 11. He continues. He says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. So he prays that they will be filled with good works. Now that's the fruit of righteousness. These good works are a result of the righteousness, like I said before, it's the result um, that everyone have if they have received Christ. Remember, according to Second Corinthians five, verse twenty one, we are made the righteousness of God in him. So that is in the at the moment of salvation you become the very righteousness of God because you are placed in Christ. Now, like I said earlier, um, with the good works being the fruit of righteousness, it is not the cause for righteousness. All right, The good works itself does not make anybody righteous. But a believer should be filled with good works. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 that we um, have done a few weeks ago, we read there, For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should wo- walk in them. So we should be filled with them. That is part of our purpose of being here. But it's not just good works for the sake of doing good works. It is to be done, like Paul says here um, in verse 11, unto the glory and praise of God. So that that is what makes it worth it. It is to bring glory and praise to God. You know, we don't always think that doing something as simple as bringing somebody a nice meal when they are sick or Calling them when they are lonely or helping somebody with their groceries or whatever else is something that can bring glory to God. But folks, it does. It does. Because that good work that you do flows out of the righteousness that you receive from Jesus Christ. Now, in a different context, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So even the most mundane things, such as eating and drinking, can be done to the glory of God. It can bring Him glory. Now that brings us to the end of the content of, of Paul's prayer. But I want you to notice here that what, what he was not praying for. We see no mention here, or, or in any of Paul's prayers that we have recorded in Scripture, uh, of him praying for the believers' physical needs or for church growth or any other sort of physical thing. And it is not like those things were not important to him. Okay, Physical things um, were important. Um, so much so we have a verse in 1 Timothy 5, verse 23, where he, s- he instructs Timothy to just drink a little bit of wine as medicine for his stomach. We also read in the book of Acts how Paul did miracles of healing. So spiritual things were important to him. or or, sorry, physical things, but the spiritual things were always more important. They are more important, and it it makes sense, because we will be leaving all the physical things behind when we go to meet the Lord one day. But it is the spiritual things that are the most important. Now, I'm, I'm just mentioning that because that realization has really changed the way that I started to pray for people. We need to put the emphasis where the Lord puts the emphasis. Verse 12. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Now, these things that he's talking about here is everything that led up to him finally being jailed in Rome and, and of course, his time as a prisoner there as well. Now, Paul was not thrown in a dungeon, okay, uh, um, at this point. Well, yeah, he wasn't thrown in a dungeon here or living in a dungeon. But we read in Acts chapter 28 and verse 30 that he was allowed to stay in a house uh, that he had to rent for himself. Uh, it was not government sponsored. <laughs> right? So he was placed under house arrest. And in Acts 28 and verse 16, we read that he always had a soldier that was guarding him. All right? So he never had any kind of privacy. That God was there when he ate, when he slept, when he had friends over, when he prayed, or when he taught, or when he preached. Can you imagine living like that? Uh, nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. But Paul didn't think of it that way. He's, he's basically, basically telling the Philippians that... that well, he should, they shouldn't be worried about him or feel sorry for him. But the things that happened to him actually worked out in such a way that the gospel could be preached to more people. <laughs> now, we know that Paul used every single opportunity he got, uh, whether it was in synagogues or in the marketplace or even in prison, or, or um, to preach the gospel. We've got an excellent record about that in the book of Acts. But he's not making light of his sufferings. All right. The sufferings were real. And he he does acknowledge that. But he is rejoicing that God used it so that people could hear the gospel. Because in the end of the day, that's the mission, right? I believe that that is why Christians don't just get raptured up as soon as they get saved. Um, It's because we have a job to do. We are here to bring light to this dark place. And so whatever the obstacles, whatever the dangers or the distractions that came across Paul's path, it all helped to further the gospel. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, he spoke to the elders at Ephesus and he said the following, I'll just read it to you. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. To testify the gospel of the grace of God. Everything in his life had importance only to the extent that it helped to further the gospel. Verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. So it was impossible for those soldiers that were guarding Paul um, to not hear him teach, preach, and pray. And they even watched how he treated other people. They saw everything that he did. And you know that they spoke about him with, uh, with their friends and their colleagues, of course. And in the end, everybody got to know that Paul was not held prisoner there because he was a criminal. He was a prisoner because he simply wouldn't stop preaching about Jesus Christ and his gospel. And that is all that mattered to Paul. He simply wanted to preach the gospel. Verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So it seems as though before Paul's imprisonment, the believers were hesitant uh, to openly share the gospel with others. You see, the citizens of the Roman Empire grew increasingly hostile towards believers. Um, They they saw it as, as a threat Christianity as a threat to their way of living and and the things that they did. And even the Jewish leaders, as you know, were uh, persecuting the believers. But Paul's example gave the believers the boldness that they needed to still preach the gospel. They saw how God blessed him and protected him, despite everything that happened to him. They also saw how Paul didn't lose any of his zeal, And how he used every single opportunity he got to stand up and preach the truth of the Word of God. And that finally energized them and gave them the the courage they needed to do the same. Now this is the amazing effect, folks, that the testimony of a single faithful follower of Christ can have on those that watch him. Even though Paul's circumstances were, were something that most people won't even be able to imagine... He kept on serving his Lord with joy and faithfulness because he trusted the Lord. He trusted the Lord. Now, there were two groups of people that, that became bolder to preach the word because of Paul. And we see that here in verse 15. Uh, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. So this first group preached Christ because they were envious of Paul. They envied his blessings, his, his great ministry, and the gifts that he had, and also the, the respect and the love that he had in the church. And so like anybody who is motivated by envy, they started to cut him down before other people. To make themselves look good, and to be honest, if you think about it it, it, it wouldn't have been too hard to do. Paul was in prison; they weren't. So it would have been easy to say that Paul was so sinful that the Lord had to chastise him by having him in prison. Now, Paul say, says here that he did not preach sincere; they did not preach sincerely, but out of contention. So. Their motives weren't pure. They they felt that they were somehow in competition with him. And so they became hostile towards Paul. And they thought that slandering him would add extra pain to what he was already going through. Now, I'm sure it wasn't fun to hear the things people are saying about him. And the um, false accusations and the stories, the, the gossip that's going. I'm sure it, it hurt Paul's heart. But he says that they were preaching Christ. Now, notice he says that they were preaching Christ. They were not preaching some sort of false gospel. Otherwise, Paul would have said that they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were zealous about it, but not because they loved the Lord. They were zealous about preaching the gospel because they envied Paul and they wanted to prove that they were at least as much, if not more capable of doing the same kind of job that he did. That was their motivation. And I think Paul is mentioning this here to point out that your motives in your ministry do matter. It's good to take some time every now and again and and to check if you're doing what you do because you love the Lord. Or whether there's some sort of false motivation behind it. Maybe you want to try and impress the pastor or or, or somebody else or or whatever it may be. Be seen. But then there was this other group that Christ preached. That preached preached Christ out of goodwill, and that indicates their motive. Their motives were pure. They loved and they supported Paul and, and his ministry, and they were truly grateful for him. They knew that he wasn't in prison because he was unfaithful to the Lord, but actually the opposite. They knew, as Paul said here in verse 17, that he was set for the defense of the gospel. They knew that it was his job to preach the gospel there in prison. And also that that was the reason that God allowed him to be there in the first place. <laughs> their love and their respect for Paul and his excellent example in the face of these enormous trials that he faced. Uh, it motivated them to preach the gospel. Verse 18, he says that. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and therein in And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. So he says, whether they're preaching out of envy or out of goodwill, I don't care just as long as Christ is preached. (laughs) You see, folks, God's word is always powerful. It's always sharper than any two-edged sword, whatever the motives of the preacher may be. Think of Jonah. Jonah went to Nineveh. He didn't want to go, all (laughs) right? He first went to Tarsus, but but God had him go to Nineveh, and he preached there, and in his sermon said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was it. And all of Nineveh repented, and God spared them. But his motives weren't right. We know that. But you see, God's word is always true. It is always powerful. It, It will always accomplish that which the Lord pleases. As Isaiah 55, 11 says, whether the preacher of the word has envy in his heart or not. Now, of course, Paul would have wanted people to preach out of a pure motivation. But at the end of the day, what matters most is that Christ is preached. And everything that Paul was going through helped that cause. Verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation. Um Sorry, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, the salvation that he's talking about can either be his eternal and final salvation, or that he would be cleared of the accusations against him when he he appears before Caesar and therefore be released from prison. But whatever it may be, it's clear that Paul is pointing out that his circumstances were only temporary. As we see at the end of verse 20, he says there, uh, whether it be by life or by death, he would be delivered from them in the end. And he says that the reason he knew that was because the Philippians were praying for him. Paul knew that God listens to the prayers of his people. And he factors that into his plans. And, and he especially appreciated the prayers of this church. Now, Paul was no stranger in asking for prayer uh, from his fellow believers. You know, we... We see that a lot uh, going on in, the, in his epistles. But what he is saying here in verse 19 is that the prayers of the Philippians and the provision of the Holy Spirit worked together to give Paul the joy and the peace that he needed in his current circumstances. And so he would have, he could have confidence in knowing that he would be saved from his current temporary circumstances uh, in, in however way it may be. You know, we we tend to um, jump to salvation from sin, you know, getting saved by Christ when we read this word salvation. But in this case, Paul is talking about being saved from his circumstances, whether that is during his earthly lifetime or by death when he goes to be with the Lord. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed But that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. So he knew that in the end he would be vindicated. And so he will not be ashamed of anything. Not of his ministry, not of his hope in Christ, not of his trials that he was going through or anything else for that matter. He did it all and was going through it all because he had this chief goal in mind. To magnify Christ in his body. And this should be the desire of everyone of God's children. You see, in the end, Paul didn't care how he would be able to magnify Christ. Uh, whether it was by his life or by his death. He was just continually pressing towards that goal. And he, he says that in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I almost want to give a moment of silence there, but I see our time is running out, so I won't. But for Paul, all of life only had meaning in Christ, as long as Christ was magnified in him. And he saw death as a gain to him, because then he would be able to only focus on glorifying Christ for all of eternity, without all of the earthly distractions and problems. What an amazing example of what a Christian's attitude must be. Folks, we do. We we, we live in strange times. And all of the issues of the day can get overwhelming. So much so that you just want to go sit on a heap of ashes and feel sorry for yourself. It would do us well to keep this perspective that Paul is showing us here. To live is Christ. Everything in your life can be used as an opportunity... To magnify Christ. And perhaps that is why so many Christians have lost their joy. Because their life started to revolve around themselves and all sorts of other things instead of Christ. I don't know. Verse 22. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is is more needful for you. So, Paul is saying he's, he's torn between these two op- options. Either I have to die and be with Christ, or stay alive and keep on serving the church. Now, on the one hand, he knew that if he w- would stay alive, that he would continue to lead people to the Lord, he would continue to edify the church, teach the saints um, how to do the same, and so on. And on the other hand, if he were to die he would be with Christ, which is far better, he says. And it is, because that is the thing that we are ultimately working, uh, looking forward to, right? To be with Christ, to be free from all the earthly suffering, all the problems, all the tears, to see him as he is and to be with him forever, it's definitely far better. But unless you think that Paul had suicidal thoughts, he, he says that on the other hand, he can stay in this life and continue working for Christ. You see, Paul was a faithful minister of the word. So as long as the Lord still had to had work for him to do here on earth, he was willing to stay on and to do it, even even though he longed to be with his Saviour Saviour, verse twenty five. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for the furtherance and joy of faith. So he he knew his ministry to the Philippians was not complete, which is why he is so confident that he will keep on living for a while before going on to be with Christ. He, He was convinced that the church still needed him so that they could grow in their faith. And whenever you grow in the faith, you will necessarily grow in joy. That just goes hand in hand. Verse 26. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. This church was worried about Paul and, and so they were praying that he would get delivered out of prison. So he hoped to get out of there and to see them again. Because he knew that it would bring them joy to see him again. And they would they would be grateful towards Jesus Christ to see him again. You see, their joy... For Paul was rooted in Jesus Christ and that is uh, that is because he was such a faithful minister of Christ in the, or to them rather. They loved Christ and therefore they loved Paul. Verse 27 Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ that whether I come and see you or else be absent I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, I I see it is almost 7 o'clock, so if you would just bear with me for 10 more minutes, that would be awesome. But verse 27, you see, all believers are called to live a life that is consistent with the truth of the gospel. We We say that we should practice what we preach, right? And that's absolutely true. If the way that you behave or or the way that you treat people isn't consistent with what you profess to believe, then it can actually cast some doubt in the minds of unbelievers on whether or not the gospel is actually true. And Paul is telling them this because he wants to hear that the church is unified in their efforts to preach and live out the gospel. He wants them to be unified in one spirit. Now, that's not the Holy Spirit. You know, they've already been unified in the Holy Spirit by being saved. But but he's rather referring to the attitude of the believers. He wants them to be totally unified, both in their minds and in their attitudes, to advance the gospel or the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. The believers in in the time that this was written had good reason to be terrified on a on a human level, because they lived under a constant threat of being beaten, being thrown into prison, or even being executed. And so, Paul has to tell them not to be terrified by the by the adversaries of the gospel, because the fact that they are be they are persecuting the church because of the gospel means it, it, it is evidence that those people are heading for eternal destruction. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, what what born-again child of God would attack another believer because of the gospel? It it just wouldn't make any sense. So these people aren't saved, and that is proof of it. But then on the other hand, it is actually proof that these believers that are being executed, that they are actually saved. It shows that they really believe the gospel and the promises that are contained in it. And, and they were sincere about it. Verse 29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now, folks, it's counterintuitive for many of us to think that suffering can be a gift of God. I mean, how can it be? Is God not supposed to make my life more comfortable? Well, no, actually. You know, Jesus said that the disciple is not above the master, nor the servant above his Lord. He said, if they have called the the master of the house above, how much more shall they call them of his household? (laughs) In Second Timothy 3 verse 12, Paul said, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, that's not the type of verse that you put on a coffee cup. <laughs> but it's still true. You will not be able to avoid persecution if you wish to live a godly life. Now, it may be a mild type of persecution, you know, people making fun of you, calling you stuff or, 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 or so on because you believe in Christ. Or it can be something harsher, such as being tortured uh, or even executed because of your faith. But the servant is still not above his master. And folks, I I say this as someone who has not almost been beaten to death or, or stood before a firing squad because of my faith in Christ. But to suffer for Christ's sake is a privilege. It is a privilege to be To be so closely associated with Christ that the world hates you as much as they hate him. Now, I'm not saying go out and look for trouble. Of course not, you know. But what I am saying is that if you live a godly life in Jesus Christ, trouble will find you. And that is when when we should remember to praise God. Because, well, it's a sign of our salvation. It is a sign of our salvation, you know, in in Romans 5 verse 3, Paul wrote there, not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. So Paul is reminding the Philippians here that even though they are going through similar things that they saw him go through and now heard him go through, they should remember that their enemies will be destroyed and the privilege of suffering for the cause of Christ was given to them by God. Alright, that is chapter 1 of Philippians. Um, Yeah, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your wonderful word. Lord, thank you for putting us under conviction. When we read about uh, the things that you did, Lord, when we read about the things that Paul did and what he was going through and the believers um, there in Philippi, Lord, it, it is humbling lord it, it it is really convicting um things to think about so lord i want to ask you please help us to to be faithful servants of you willing slaves lord please help us to glorify you in our bodies so that one day lord you may not be ashamed of us but lord that that um, you would you can say good job lord think that that's the main thing lord we want to praise you lord thank you for being with us tonight and thank you for um for teaching us through your word and through your spirit and uh, lord please be with us the rest of this night we pray this in jesus name amen amen thank you everybody i hope you have a good night Bye.